Quaker.com podcast. Today is Friday, November 16th, 2012, and this is podcast number 231. And it's a very special podcast. With me is a friend of mine, a good friend, uh, Glenn Tate. I've known Glenn for around four years, give or take a month or two. And if you uh, if you're new to the podcast and you haven't uh, heard Glenn before, uh, I would encourage you to hit the archives uh, or do a search for Glenn Tate at BadQuaker.com and listen to the other interview with him as well. Uh, like I said, I've known him for a long time. He's what I consider a good friend. He's got an open invitation to my house anytime he wants, and he's a man I trust. So for whatever that means to the listener, uh, Glenn, thank you very much for coming back on the show with me. Oh, thank you for having me, Ben. Um, I did want to mention before we get going that um, I, I've been kind of pushing this lately. We're almost at 100 members on our forum, and uh, folks, be sure and drop by badquaker.com. Hit the button up on the upper right-hand side of the page for the forum, and give a look. If it's something you're interested in, you know, you can hover around it and look at a lot of it without even making a, uh, a login. But if you make a login, you can see a little bit more. And then if you uh, if you buy a membership, you can see a little bit more even after that. So take a look at it. If it's something you're interested in, be sure and, and become a part of the community there. Okay, that's my commercial, Glenn. <laughs> there you go. Well, hey, it takes money to uh, keep podcasts on the air, so you need to do that. Now, uh, Glenn is the author of a series of books that you really need to take a look at if you haven't already called 299 Days. What's the subtitle on that, Glenn? Well, there are 10 books in the series, and each book has a subtitle. So there are 10 subtitles. And right now, books three and four have just come out on Amazon, and I'll uh, I'll provide links on the page at badquaker.com where those show notes are today. But if you haven't read one and two, get your hands on those first and read uh, read one and two. And they're not expensive. Uh, um, I can't remember now how much they are, but they're not. You're not charging five hundred dollars a book here. No, no. Um, the books book one is fourteen ninety nine off the top of my head. Book two, which is shorter, that's just how the chapters broke out. Is I want to say nine ninety nine, and books three and four, I believe, are fourteen ninety nine. Kindle, Nook, hard copy, and uh, it's a it's a prepper um, fiction, but not actually too fictional uh, <laughs> mm, uh, yeah. series. And so, yeah, that's what it's about. But we're uh, we're actually not going to talk about the book today. I mean, I certainly can. I don't want people to think they've been suckered into an interview about a book because they haven't. They, they should read the book, but they should also listen to the other non-book part of the interview. <laughs> yeah, which is going to be mostly what we're talking about today. And that was the tease for today. The, uh, the title for today is Confessions of a Former Republican. Um, so, uh, you know, and let me say this too, uh, like I said before, Glenn and I have been friends for a long time and we don't agree on everything, but we can still be friends and still not agree on everything. And there's things that I believe that Glenn doesn't and the same way, the other way around, there are things politically, religiously, philosophically that we both agree with. And there are things we don't agree with and we can still be good friends, you know, uh, and find enough common ground that, that we can still have a, a, a good, friendly relationship with each other. Absolutely. We're not haters like the other side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on what went on with the election and with what went on in the, uh, in the Republican Party in the last two years? Boy, uh, two good questions. First of all, the, the election. Um, um, by way of background, I'm as the, as the name of the show implies, a former Republican. Um, I jokingly refer to myself as a former bloodthirsty neocon. Um, that's about half true and half kidding, but uh, I was your standard 
Republican. The reason for that was uh, I was raised by very left-wing parents, and you know, in my household, the way you rebelled was to put a picture of Ronald Reagan up to make your parents mad, right? So, um, <laughs> so I was a standard Republican and um, uh, went along with that um, that line of thinking and didn't think too much about it. I've never been. Oh, terribly concerned with the social issues, but that was sort of part of the party platform. I understood how it got Republicans elected, so I was kind of okay with it for you know some pretty bad reasons. Um, I'm going to admit a lot of things that don't reflect very well on my at least past character. I think my current character is a little better, and so did that. Um, I I ended up working in in politics, not in elected office, but. Um, as I've mentioned before on our on our first interview, I have a front row seat to corruption. I, I work in Olympia, Washington, which is the capital of Washington State, and I get to observe very closely government and 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 the bad things it does. So I did that. I'm I'm cruising along in life as your typical Republican, but I've always I've always love liberty and I just thought the Republican Party was the the vehicle to get the most liberty. Um, the fastest. Uh, it was very practical. And so um, you ask about the election and the future of the party, and, and I'll be getting to that, but I wanted to give some background about where, what, you know, what uh, perspective I'm coming at this from. Um, in 2008, um, I started becoming a lot more uh, liberty-minded. There was a lot more reason to wake up and become liberty-minded in 2008. We had all the bailouts. That's one of the things that really did it for me. It seemed clear to me that the bailouts were and are um, corporatism. Another word for that that's unpopular, of course, is fascism. Everyone thinks fascism means people with little mustaches and genocide and things like that. And, of course, there's a variety of flavors and degrees of fascism. But any way you slice it, America was corporatist in 2008. It probably was before then, to be honest, but I was realizing it in 2008. So politically, here I am, your regular Republican who's having some questions about maybe whether – you know, Republican Party isn't in cahoots with the Democrat Party to do some bad things. And then the Republicans nominate a complete goofball like John McCain, who on so many levels was just terrible. So I, I you know, I vote libertarian um, in, in 2008. Yes, um, I was voting. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, do that. And then from 2008 to 2012, I watched the country politically, economically, socially, um, Diplomatically, just completely, you know, coming apart. Um, we haven't hit the the rock bottom that we will be hitting, um, but you know, we're we're well on our way. So I watch all of this happen, and I start to think to myself, "Wow, we have much much bigger problems now than we did even in 2008. How are they going to be fixed?" Um, remember that I work in and around government, and fixing public policy problems is something I do a lot of, and I'm I'm versed on my day job for goodness sakes and so when i see all these problems i i start thinking well how how do they how do you go about fixing them not only public policy wise but politically how do you get the votes necessary to actually do the fixes that you think need to be done well i pretty quickly realized that there is no way <laughs> no political way to fix this mess we're in um and my my concern and this is a long-winded preface to the answer about you know, how did the elections go? My concern leading up to 2010 was there were roughly as many people in this country who vote, who who got stuff, got free stuff from the government, as there were people um, who who contributed, who didn't on on average, on net, get free stuff. And politically, it's it's never good when a country is roughly evenly divided between people who are having things taken from them and people who are getting stuff um, via the government, that's never a good combo. The question in, I guess, public policy circles was, when do we hit the tipping point? Um, you know, when, when 50% or so of those who vote, that being a key qualifier of those who vote, 50% or so of people who vote realize, and I mean really realize, not just in their head, they realize that when they start to act upon this, when they realize that they can vote themselves free stuff, um, well, when's that tipping point going to be? Uh, ben, November 6, 2012 is when that tipping point was. I watched those returns, 
and all these states that were supposed to be battleground states. I was familiar with the polling and the polling um, uh, process and some of the internal data and, and from all these states. And Romney was supposed to win, uh, and he kept not winning state after state. Um, it was pretty obvious that 50.1% or thereabouts of people in this country who vote have their hand out and are perfectly willing to take stuff from other people. Now, there's always been that going on. This is not something that was brand new, but the thing that I think changed uh, in the 2012 election is that lots and lots of people out there who might have voted for Republicans in the past, um, now they, they have their hands out. We, As we know, roughly half the households in the country get receive federal benefits of some kind, and roughly half the households do not pay federal income tax. Um, and those two groups are roughly <laughs> coextensive, by the way. Um, and so there were enough people out there who would still vote for Republicans or something because they thought it was the right thing to do. They had perhaps foreign policy reasons to do it. Perhaps they were socially conservative. There were a variety of reasons they, they still did it. Well, in 2012, we found out that that no matter what other reasons people have, the, the dominant factor appears to be getting free stuff from other people. And the reason I can be sort of categorical about that, which is I try to not be categorical and, and generalize. Um, I'm going to say something that's that's probably going to I don't know be sound odd to your audience, but I think objectively speaking, and I'm talking about if you take a USA Today sort of view of of Americans and and you know kind of averages and objectively speaking, Mitt Romney was not a terrible candidate for the Republicans. Now, not my guy, and I have policy differences, blah blah blah. But I mean, he wasn't a screaming lunatic. He was a a very sellable candidate. Barack Obama, on the other hand, had a terrible record. We all know about that. Don't need to get into that. If the Republicans can't beat a guy like Barack Obama with the record Barack Obama has, and they can't beat him with a a semi decent candidate, there's no reason for the Republican Party to exist. And this is a big deal for somebody who started subscribing to National Review at age 19, by the way. This is a hard thing for me to say. <laughs> and so that's what I think. I think the at the national level, the Republican Party has absolutely uh, no purpose to exist. If you can't beat this guy uh, this year, you're never going to win because if it's 50.1% of, of voters have their hands out now and are willing to just vote based on the getting free stuff um, criterion, uh, next year or next election cycle, it'll be 52% and they'll be 54 This number never goes down, right? <laughs> um, this number never goes down. And so you'll never have a better chance than 2012 if you're a Republican to win at the national level. Um, so I think the Republican Party is going to become the Whig Party, and uh, it'll be an interesting historical thing. It'll take several election cycles for people to sort of get rid of their old habits, and with the two-party system and, and all the ad advantages that are pointed towards a two-party system, um, there still will be you know, a Republican Party because we're not really set up for anything um, other than two parties, and the Republicans will be, I guess, the default one of the two parties. So you'll still have a Republican Party, but I'm talking about as far as getting anything done and being functional. So I don't think there's future for the Republican Party. As far as what happened on election night, I've, I've hit on it. You know, there are people with their with their hands out, and we've hit the tipping point. Um, it's it's never going to be fixable with politics. Um, now, that's not to say that people need to do violent things. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying the traditional idea that most sort of USA Today kind of voters out there have, which is that every four years they can vote and by voting for the right person, they can fix everything. Uh, that has been disproven in my mind. I, it's It was disproven in your mind many years ago, so I'm catching up. But um, I think we have really good evidence and I think there are several million Americans um, who are having the same reaction, former Republicans probably, who are having the same reaction that I'm having, which is we can't fix it with the Electoral College and a national election in this run in 2012. It'll never be fixed. So I am not going to vote anymore. Um, uh, I just, you know, you, you suggested this a while ago and I listened to it and I thought about it and I, um, I, you know, 
I, I just vote. It's what I do. I've been voting since I was 18. It's just something you do. It's sort of a, a sacrament, you know, you just, it's, <laughs> it's what you do. Um, so I, I just, I won't be voting anymore, um, because it doesn't matter. Um, and look at the ballot in my state. I'm in Washington state, which is different than many other states because I have this front row seat to corruption. I've been involved in government. I, I literally knew almost everyone on the ballot from the governor's race on down. I, I knew the candidates. Um, I knew members of their staff in some cases. I looked at this ballot, almost every single slot on this ballot, I would say to myself, that guy's a liar and I know it because of some personal experience. This guy is crazy. She's lazy. Um, she's really dumb. I mean, I went down this and, and not many people get to have that kind of personal knowledge of virtually everyone on the ballot. And I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, there's nobody to vote for. Then in many races, there was only one candidate on the ballot. Um, Western Washington and the Capitol here in Olympia is extremely, uh, strongly controlled by the Democrat party. So no one, even, no, Republicans don't even run. And so in several instances for state legislative candidates, for example, I only had one candidate to vote for, most of whom are certified socialists. They'll never admit it, but they are absolutely, by every definition of the word, socialists. So I look at this ballot and I say to myself, what am I doing? I mean, I, I voted for about three people, you know, like, I don't know, state treasurer and like little things. And I said, well, this is, this is kind of stupid. So um, I'm going to take a trip trial separation from voting. I think it'll end up becoming a permanent separation from voting because uh, it absolutely doesn't matter in my state. And there are two more reasons why voting doesn't matter, um, and at least in my state, and I think this applies to many states. Again, due to the position that I have where I get to observe government up close, I've got to see two things up close that are even uh, better reasons not to vote. That would be voter fraud and gerrymandering. <laughs> voter fraud, I was uh, involved in a 2004 gubernatorial election um, contest in our state. Uh, out of three and a half million votes that were cast off the top of my head, uh, there was a 132 vote difference in the race for governor. Um, and I think the statistic is that if, if the election were, you know, two or three football fields, the margin was about two inches or something, you know, if you look at it that way. It was incredibly tight. Um, absolute, complete, provable voter fraud. Of the 132-vote margin, there were at least 750 um, felons who voted, uh, who, who were, we could prove voted, and they obviously didn't count as votes. So you've got more illegal votes, provably illegal votes, than you have a margin of... Uh, of you know quote victory um and guess what the courts uh they really didn't think there was a remedy um they wouldn't order a new election nobody seemed to care um the republican elections uh, administrator in the state said he didn't see any evidence of voter fraud so you've got really you know clear voter fraud now that was a really close election and voter fraud to be fair only really matters i think in close elections I've also worked on things that involved um, voter registration um, situations. I'm trying to be vague here so I don't give away what I what I do for a living. But um, and I've seen uh, amazing and, and horrible uh, abuses of uh, you know registering people to vote who obviously don't exist, who have made up names. Um, you know, 600 people registered to vote at a homeless shelter in one day, and a bunch of them have names like. Joe Montana and Fruto Boy and like names of like movie stars and stuff and nobody seems to think that's a problem. Um, they get a vote. Um, so the voter fraud is a really, really big deal. I'll tell you something and you almost have to experience this to, to fully appreciate this. But when you see an election clearly stolen and nobody caring, <laughs> that was the thing. I kept waiting for a judge to step in or judges and say – this this is illegal and we're going to have another vote. I kept waiting. You can go ahead and laugh if you want, Ben. I kept waiting for prosecutors to say, oh, 750 felons um, have either admitted voting or it was proven that they voted. That's a crime. Um, 
we're actually going to prosecute them to deter other people from voting illegally. I expected the system to come in and do something to try to fix what was clearly voter fraud. Nobody gave a hoot. And that was really, really um, disheartening is too light of a word. It, it, sh it shook my entire faith in, in these elections. Why work and fight so hard to try to elect somebody um, when if it's close, it's not within the, the margin of cheating, as we call it in Washington State, um, then you're going to have a fraudulent result. The other thing that is a reason not to vote is gerrymandering. Nobody, I think, really appreciates how bad gerrymandering is, and that's, of course, where they, they draw voting districts to protect incumbents usually. Um, for example, if, if you've got 50-50 Republican-Democrat sort of area, they'll draw the district, let's say a state legislative district, so that they know with certainty that it'll be a 55% Democrat district and 45% Republican district. Well, the Democrat has a seat for life there because um, unless there are big changes in demographics and lots of people moving or, or changing their minds, um, you're always going to have a safe Democrat seat. Republicans do it too. Um, they have you know, I don't know, 40% of the seats in, are in the legislature in my state are safe Republican seats. The thing that really capped it off for me was about two weeks before the 2008 election, I was, as part of my job, don't get mad, Ben, I was at a big Republican fundraising dinner. And they gave out an award, the Washington State Republican Party, they gave out an award, it's kind of like Republican of the Year, the person who's done the most to help the party all year. And I'm polite and I'm sitting there. And the person who won it was the Republican member of the state redistricting commission who drew up uh, the legislative district boundaries after the 2010 census. And I, and the speech was, this guy's done so much for the party. He kept a lot of safe seats for us and he helped get some good boundaries in the 10th congressional district. And we're going to pick up that seat. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Did you just say that out loud? You just said the guy who helped the party the most is the one drawing the the boundary lines for legislative districts. Do you know how unprincipled and slimy that is? I could, I mean, and that was, I mean, there were many last straws, right? There were three or four last straws, but that was one of the last straws. And I just thought, okay, why, <laughs> why vote? If, if your district is set up so that it's predetermined uh, intentionally, it is predetermined Who's going to win? Why are you voting? So I don't think people appreciate the impact uh, gerrymandering has. So gerrymandering, voter fraud, um, knowing most of the candidates being who are terrible on the thing, um, those are those are the three reasons why I've decided to quit voting. And uh, Glenn, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and talking about this because sometimes, you know, I can say these things over and over. And I know I know my listeners believe me. I know that they don't think I'm lying or anything. But sometimes having somebody else say these things, somebody who is in the trenches, who's watching, who knows exactly what they're talking about, sometime that, sometimes that second voice really means a lot. Uh, when we get back from this break, I'm going to continue talking to Glenn and we're going to have more for you. Stick with me. I'd like to talk to you about Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. The Liberty Classroom is a collection of courses on history and Austrian economics presented in an easy, convenient way. There are video files and audio files you can download. You can participate in discussions online in the discussion boards. And there are live sessions with Tom Woods and the other educators where you can directly interact with the instructors. Now, who is this for? It's for anyone who realizes that they didn't get the real story in government-approved schools. It's also great for homeschoolers and unschoolers. Join Tom Woods and his team, and they'll equip you with one of the very best tools the Liberty Movement has to offer, knowledge, real knowledge in a usable form. At Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, you can get all this for only $99 a year. Now, that's less than the cost of one movie DVD a month. This gets you access to absolutely everything on their site, all the courses, plus additional courses that will be added later, the discussion forums, the live sessions, everything. So how do you do this? You go to badquaker.com. You click on the banner for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. By using that link, you'll let Tom know that I sent you, and you'll help badquaker.com. Thank you very much.
And thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. This has been Stone of the Bad Quaker podcast, and with me is author Glenn Tate, author of the book series 299 Days, that uh, sort of describes what happens when a country like the U.S. kind of falls apart. And Glenn, uh, we were you were talking about, right before the break, you were talking about gerrymandering, and uh, a lot of people understand what gerrymandering is, you gave a pretty good description there where literally the politicians who have the most to gain in a situation sit down and draw out the lines and divide groups of voters so that so that certain politicians can stay in office pretty much as long as they want to. Is that a, a pretty good description? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's down to mathematical precision, the way they come up with these uh, districts. And they, they have all kinds of computers and census data, and they, they, they spend weeks and weeks, and they have, you know, computer and mathematician and geographic specialists who come up with the, uh, the best way... <laughs> To make sure that these sa- these seats are safe, and as your listeners probably know, every ten years after the the U.S. Census, uh, states redraw their um, their boundaries for their state legislative districts and also the congressional districts. And you know, if one district gets seven hundred more likely Republican voters, then uh, you know, if that's a re- safe Republican seat, um, maybe they they sop up another 600 Democrat voters from some adjoining district to make sure that on balance, it's still a 100 seat gain or pardon me, a 100 vote gain for that district for the safe Republican or vice versa. The, uh, the parties, you know, are interchangeable here. Um, the thing that's really disgusting and, and I'm a, I'm a fighter, not, um, I don't, I don't hurt people, but I mean, I mean, I, I fight for things and I expect when there are really big problems, like all the problems we have in this country and in my state, that people will fight. And the thing that makes me the maddest about the Republican Party, and one of the reasons I'm a former Republican is, you know, the Republican Party was in on this. They would wink and say, we want our safe seats. And to the Republicans would say to the Democrats, you can still run this state with your 60 or so percent, you know, majority um, in the state house and the state senate, you can still run this place. Just give us our 40 percent of cushy seats so we can have people who can become elected and draw a salary and get a pension and go to Rotary Club breakfasts and have everyone stand up and clap for the 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 honorable esteemed senator. And you know, the things that politicians do um, in order to keep their their crappy little jobs um, of being a legislator, it blows my mind, um, but they want to have those safe seats. And Republicans in general, certainly in my state, the ones I'm familiar with, Republican legislators and Republican legislative staff are extremely comfortable being in the minority. Um, they get to be in the legislature. How cool would that be? <laughs> and they get a per diem and they get, you know, they get the, the pension and everything else. And the cool part is when you're in the minority, uh, you don't have to work very hard. You don't have to come up with a bill that's going to solve a complicated public policy problem. You get to just say, well, we're opposed to what the majority is doing and and then get that standing ovation at the Rotary Club uh, tomorrow morning for their breakfast. So um, the, the, the reasons that, in my case, the Republicans I'm looking at, the reasons that those incumbents – continue to allow all this bad stuff to happen. They're just not good enough reasons. Uh, there, there aren't any good enough reasons, but it's particularly bad when they do it for the little things, the little perks of office. It, it's literally what they call um, the good old boys network. I mean, that's, that's exactly what that phrase is talking about, and it's rampant nationwide. Oh, absolutely. And I've had the, I guess... Uh, fortune or misfortune. I'm trying to think of the word. I've I've been able to see it up close, and to uh, and to experience it. And it is it is exactly that. Once in a while, and I'll speak because I'm more familiar with the Republican Party. Once in a while, there'll be one or two legislators who will, um, uh, in our in our state, you know, they're true liberty people, and they will work for office, and um, they, they get elected in some cases because they're in safe Republican districts, and um, and then they'll go and try to reform things, and they're they're told directly and indirectly that uh, they don't need to rock the boat, and um, either they they get mad at the party leadership, um, or 
they just kind of join the crowd and, and do all the other stuff. Um, but you know, it's very, very, very hard for a slate of, of reform minded, um, uh, candidates to come into office and to actually get anything done. Every conceivable hindrance is put in front of them and every conceivable incentive for them to just go along with the party line, um, the establishment and all that, every incentive, you know, pushes them towards the, the status quo and every uh, hindrance prevents them from going the other direction. And that's why with, I'll be honest with you, very close firsthand knowledge, that's why I'm convinced that these problems cannot be fixed by voting. Um, it, they just can't. And I don't know what the other solution is, but it ain't voting. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, sometimes, well, at least I, I'm paranoid about this and I think about it sometimes. But I, I think sometimes I, when I'm talking to my listeners on a regular basis and I'm talking to them about voting and I'm, and, uh, and typically I'm coming at it from a, from a, what I consider a moral perspective and I, and I don't really put enough emphasis on the practical perspective. And I've even had people tell me that in, you know, in, in um, constructive criticism that if I, if I really pointed out how uh, practically useless voting is that I would win a whole lot more hearts and minds. And that's really what we're talking about here. My, I was talking to my sister in eastern Kentucky about this topic a, a few weeks before the election. And, uh, and I said, you know, it just, cause they had asked me if I was planning to vote. And I said, no, I, I don't want to dirty my hands with the process. And it just doesn't mean anything if you do. And they, they were both, my, my sister and her husband were both in, in, uh, agreement. And then I conceded some ground because I know that they're very different from me politically. I conceded some ground and I said, well, you know, if it's some local issue, some, some county, you know, issue or whatever, it might be different. But on the, on the national scale, voting just means nothing. And they very quickly, uh, they almost laughed and they very quickly corrected me. And in what they look at in Eastern Kentucky is, um, the people who uh, who are in that good old boy network, mm -hmm. um, th those people will be elected. Period. That's it. There might be the occasional, you know, uh, a levy that that doesn't get passed or whatever, but it's only because they don't care about it. That that little committee of, uh, you know, that uh, that good old boys network just doesn't care about that one particular issue. But if it means holding a seat or making real changes or upsetting the boat in any way. They control it, and they're not going to let it change, and it doesn't matter what the voters say. How's that compare with what you've seen? That's, it's exactly right. Um, there is virtually no practical, realistic way for a, a sentiment to sweep through the populace and change things via voting for a variety of reasons that, that we've all covered. And we've, we just don't see it. I mean, really, when was the last time there was uh, a big upheaval and – and most people said, by golly, we're going to not do this and we're going to start doing this, whatever direction that was. And it all started happening. I guess I answered my own question, and that is it happens all the time when it comes to growing the government. <laughs> that seems to happen. Um, uh, so I, obviously I'm talking about you know limiting government. Um, yeah, government – people, people uh, um, rising up and saying we want more stuff and getting what they want, that always happens. Okay, <laughs> so it's a one-way ratchet. You can always have more government, but I'm only talking about the tightening of it so you, ha you have less government. You know, when you mentioned voting in local elections, and that might be an exception to what I just said about everything, but not yet. And here's why I say that. In my state of Washington, we have an, a, an amazing initiative and referendum power. It's it's terrific. I mean, we've, we've passed some pretty decent laws this way. We recently... Uh, legalized uh, marijuana in this state, for example. Um, and so I guess that it's possible to vote for things like initiatives and referenda and actually change things. But I say not yet, and here's why. In my state, things are so uh, heavily Democrat, and I'm talking about 60 to 65 percent of the votes in this state are for one particular party and, and you know set of principles – that even with the initiative power, um, I don't know that much could happen. So, for example, if there were an initiative to, um, and I'll make something up, um, make it very, very hard to raise taxes, um, I don't know that it would pass because most people in my state are statists. And But here's the other kicker. 
the other not kicker, but here's the other thing that weakens the idea that that voting for initiatives is going to affect things. Taking that example of an initiative that makes it harder for the government to raise taxes, as, as an example, that actually passed in my state um, about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and so you're saying, hot dog, this is great. We've we've made it harder for the government to raise taxes. Well, guess what? The state Supreme Court invalidated it. So even when you pass laws by initiative and referenda, uh, you're going to have a pretty good chance of, of the judicial branch uh, invalidating the thing. So I will hold out a glimmer of hope for voting in initiatives and, and referenda if basically people, you know, pull their heads out and start voting for liberty and you can actually win elections. And then also if the courts don't strike down liberty minded things and those two things happening, I'm not counting on any time, you know, soon. So I'll continue to not vote <laughs> until those two things change. But I do want to give a little bit of of credence to the initiative process. It's a great way to nullify federal laws, by the way. That's one of the things I like about the initiative process, if it actually worked. Um, as I say in our state, we we decriminalize marijuana, which is effectively nullifying it in our state, not legally nullifying, but practically nullifying uh, a stupid federal law. So there you go. Do you think uh, do you think the feds are just going to accept that, or do you think they're going to just go on with business as usual, arresting who they want, and and uh, you know, do you do you think? I guess here's my real question because I know that if if a sheriff in a county um, has what it takes, you know, internally I'm talking about to do this, a sheriff of a county can call up the governor, and if the governor is in agreement, the sheriff can arrest any federal marshal, any DEA agent, any FBI agent for attempting to um, to pursue uh, you know drug charges on somebody or an arrest on somebody that goes against that state's laws. But um, in all practicality, do you think anything like that will ever really take place? No, I don't. Um, there could be isolated sheriffs uh, in isolated areas uh, who will do that. As, a, as an aside, I, uh, I have uh, some insight and personal knowledge of a, of a sheriff in the very rural and conservative uh, part of our state, eastern Washington, who when some federal Department of Labor inspectors announced that they would conduct warrantless searches on farms. Um, I think they were looking to see if family members, farm kids, you know, 14-year-old kids who were members of the family um, of the farmers, if they were, you know, working and doing chores, if that violated child labor laws, which is so absurd that I can't even anyway go there. But um, so that as I understand it, and um, I saw a letter to this effect, the sheriff of this particular county told the the federal labor inspectors that they would be arrested because they don't have a warrant, and since they don't have a warrant, that makes them trespassers, and the feds back down. So there, that was good news. That was good news. Um, and by the way, it took voting to have that local sheriff in power, so maybe maybe some voting's okay. In that case, it worked out. But um, a large-scale series of conflicts like this, um, I don't see happening. I mean, it could start if, if there are big, big, big things the feds are doing that are very unpopular. And, you know, I said, I wouldn't talk about the book, but here I go. Um, in, in the book, I, I talk about how increasingly federal mandates, federal laws and requirements would just be ignored by various states and local officials. Um, when there's an economic collapse and everybody in your County is hungry, um, if the EPA tells you that you have to have a particular voltage of light bulbs or something, um, you're just going to ignore the EPA. So it wasn't as much of a in-your-face local, um, uh, I don't know, local resistance to federal authority on some principal ground. It was more practical. But anyway, I don't see that happening large scale. Back to the question about federal um, enforcement of marijuana laws in states like Washington, now Colorado, and, and California. I don't think the Fed do much. Um, they will in isolated cases, and what I'm afraid of is um, marijuana. Federal marijuana prosecution will become, um, in some ways, like federal gun prosecution. It's an add-on when you're already going after somebody or you want leverage on somebody. You throw in a marijuana charge at at the federal level, or a or a gun charge at the federal level. That's of course even less principled than the Fed saying, you know, despite the Tenth Amendment despite the Commerce Clause, 
despite the Fourth Amendment, I could keep going. But anyway, despite constitutional things, we, the federal government, are going to continue to enforce marijuana laws. That's bad. But when it's it's picking and choosing, as I suspect it will be, um, where you know there's a tax protester or something like that, and uh, the feds say, oh, yeah, well, you're growing marijuana. Well, we're going to do a federal marijuana charge on you. I could see that sort of thing happening. But I think the Obama administration um, is – is probably smart enough not to have large-scale federal enforcement of these laws. I keep saying large-scale because there will still be small-scale stuff, but um, I think that as a practical matter in Washington, Colorado, and California, and there might be some states I'm forgetting about, uh, it'll it'll be practical and everything for people to use marijuana and not get arrested. Uh, you kind of touched on something there a little bit, and, I, and I'd like to put a little emphasis on it if, if I can. We've got about five minutes left in this segment, and then we'll come back for the third segment. But um, oftentimes what happens is a person gets picked up for, you know, I don't know what, uh, you know, I don't want to make it too petty. I don't want to say like, um, you know, spitting on the sidewalk or something, but, but they get picked up on some minor thing. And then there's sort of a fishing expedition that takes place. And, um, you know, if, if you have a search warrant and it's specific for specific things, then that's all you can search for. But, um, uh, but in spite of all these laws protecting the, the citizens in situations like this, they'll end up getting, they'll pick you up on the, my, my fictitious spitting on the sidewalk, they'll pick you up for that. But by the time that they get done with you, they've got you charged with six or, or maybe not charged, but at least threatened with six or seven felons and they've added things to it. And so you end up just to save your own skin, you end up uh, plea bargaining and pleading guilty to, you know, um, poking the moon in the eye when really that wasn't the first thing that they got after you with, and maybe you weren't even guilty of poking the moon in the eye, but, um, but that's better than the other thing that they like, you know, that they have hanging over you that maybe you're not guilty of either. But, um, but because juries can be so easily swayed, attorneys, uh, very often tell their clients, look, I know you're not guilty of this. I know that, but we're not going to win this. And this is the best deal I can get for you. Now, um, is that entirely made up in my mind, or can you say anything that will uh, will straighten that out? It's exactly what I think is happening and will happen more. You've, you hit it on the head. Everything you said, I agree with 100%. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I could disagree. No, absolutely. And you mentioned juries. Um, that's, that's interesting, too. Um, how would a federal, uh, a federal marijuana trial go in this state of Washington where – I don't know, 60-ish percent of the uh, people who voted, um, you know, are for the decriminalization of marijuana. Um, a jury of 12, you would think, well, that means that 60% of them uh, probably voted for this and are probably okay with, you know, possession of marijuana and everything like that. Well, that assumes there is a jury trial, and as you mentioned, with the plea bargaining, with all the add-on charges, um, you know, to create – and under these sentencing guidelines that are incredibly um, – strict and there's no discretion of any kind. I mean, if they charge you with possession of marijuana, there's X number of years in jail or whatever it is, prison actually. Um, and, and that's it. And so they've, they've created this plea bargain, uh, leverage uh, that way. So it probably doesn't get to a jury. Um, and that's one of the reasons a fully informed jury system is absolutely the way to go. And you've talked about that in the past. It's a critical, critical civil liberties, um, check on the government and the best way around that for the government is to never have any trials and I don't mean secret trials I mean just have people looking at 130 years in federal prison uh, if if their jury trial doesn't go exactly you know as they hope so juries are being crowded out of this uh, this whole system and it's just it's it's terrible it's terrible Stick with me again uh, for for another commercial folks and I'm going to be right back with more with Glenn Tate did you know author Taryn P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood? When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. 
BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. And thanks for sticking with me through the break again. And and uh, and this has been Stone with Bad Quaker Podcast. And with me is author Glenn Tate, author of 299 Days. And uh, I know I know Glenn, you said that uh, this you really are not coming on the show to push your book. But I want to mention it one more time, uh, at least in this segment. Well, one time in this segment, I've mentioned it in each segment. But I want to mention it that uh, book three and four are available at Amazon. And uh, you can, if you haven't read one and two, you need to take a look at those first because they're in series. And it's uh, describing the 299 days after an event. And uh, uh, Glenn, uh, I know you don't want to spend the whole time talking about your book, but what what is the uh, basically what's the event that that starts all this, or or um, what's the uh, what's the moment that the event takes place? Well, the moment is uh, a very clear indication um, that the United States of America has collapsed, um, and in the run up to that, it's the story and it's autobiographical um, about me basically but I I change my name I give myself a cooler name than I have in real life um, and uh, it's about me realizing the need to prepare and meeting some resistance in my family about preparing meeting some resistance in my professional circles um, and basically having to prepare um, in secret and uh, and being afraid of people finding out that I'm one of those crazy prepper people, and uh, which, given what I do for a living, it's really important for <laughs> my colleagues not to know that I'm uh, a prepper. And so then, and I describe again with this front row seat to corruption that I have. I describe the things going on that are leading to the in my view coming um, economic and political collapse, uh, a partial collapse. The total and complete like a meteor striking the earth or a pandemic that kills 99% of people. I think it'll be a partial collapse. The utilities will stay on for a very interesting reason that you'll have to read in the book. Um, but I really believe the utilities will stay on. There will be functioning government of varying degrees. Uh, in some places, there will be an even more robust um, and oppressive government. In other places, there will be little or no government and in many places there will be a weakened uh, set well a weakened form of government um, and it's not it's not categorical it's not black and white um, the way I think the collapse will be coming and then that's basically books one and two books three through ten describe um, a, a community that forms up um, out in a rural area um, where where the character's uh, bug out location, his cabin is. And it's, I think it would be very interesting for your readers because I describe how a community forms up the good way and how communities form up the bad way. And the good way is for people to respect everybody's rights, treat everybody fairly and honorably, and, and create a model that works. Um, there is a conversation in the book where the main character is talking to another uh, character and the main character is describing how this community um, should should form up and basically be governed. I know bad Quaker listeners are aghast right now. What govern? We don't like to be governed, but you know, hear me out. Um, and the idea is that we're going to treat people well, we're going to respect their rights, and our community will be prosperous. And then the undecideds and most people in this country currently are sort of undecided. So nobody walks around, you know, playing a little fife and, you know, the drums, the Revolutionary War stuff and, you know, with the tricorner hat and everything. I mean, most people are undecided or oblivious. Well, the undecideds, what are what are they going to gravitate towards? Is it the the freedom communities way where things work well and people are treated well? Um, people end up eating because, you know, there's there's an economy, um, you know, a small economy, um, and and or are they going to look towards the the loyalist approach? I call the government people loyalists because that's what I believe they are. Um, 
in which nothing works. And so the good guys community, the freedom community, grows and everyone in the surrounding areas realizes the loyalist way doesn't work. And so that I think would be interesting. There's also a uh, a uh, military situation between the good guys and the bad guys and uh, that ends in one side winning and um, I'll leave it at that. But anyway, that's the, the 10 book uh, series in a nutshell. And so you can see how if you're a liberty-minded person, it would it would uh, fit in with things you care about because it's uh, it's impossible to get done reading these books and not be a libertarian or at least be open to that um, because the main character, much like me in real life, starts off as this this Republican kind of guy and then for very concrete reasons has a change of heart. And also many of the other characters in the book um, – Start off as Republicans, and in in one case, in one prominent case, uh, a a character is a Republican communications director, based on a true story, by the way, and um, uh, is all gung ho and is going to help the government restore order and do all this stuff because that's what we Republicans do. We're the law and order people, and as the book goes on, she realizes she's being used and that this is bad. and And I'll leave it at that. I won't tell you what ultimately happens with her, but um, so you can see how people change and how people react. And there are other people in the book, and this I think would be interesting too for your listeners, um, other people in the book who absolutely love the government. And they move from wherever they are into Seattle, which is a, a loyalist stronghold in the book. And they love the fact that they're getting free stuff and the government's taking care of them. And yes, there are no civil liberties, but that's that's such an old antiquated concept. And so you get to see how <laughs> side it. And I think that's as illuminating as anything else because you know we can talk to ourselves all we want preach to the choir but people need to see this from the other the other viewpoint and i think once you look at liberty from the other viewpoint the status viewpoint um you're going to be even more convinced that as a as a libertarian you're approaching it the right way let me throw you a uh, left-handed curveball here that you weren't expecting are you familiar with the uh, guy russell means that died not long ago uh, yes, I am very familiar. The American Indian Movement. Uh, Correct. Knee and uh, and all of that. Yes. Uh, Glenn, uh, the reason I brought up Russell Means is um, I, I, you having experience with reservations and so forth. Can you give me your best wild guess? And we have about uh, oh, I guess we have about ten minutes still left. Can you give me your best wild guess? What will happen in places like the Dakotas, where there are good-sized reservations and and the people there are really in deep levels of poverty and dependence on the government's dole? Uh, how do you see places like that um, reacting to a to a general government, um, even if it's not a complete collapse, even if it's just a stumble? How do you think areas like that are going to react? Boy, what a great question! Um, because you're asking about the quintessential example of the worst levels of dependence and and everything. Um, I think that there will be quite a few people um, on the reservations who end up dying, um, and and I don't think that's a good thing, and I, I, I hope I'm wrong, and I would love to be wrong because of the, the severe, severe, severe um, dependence. I think, though, that there will be a remnant um, that will actually end up thriving because in a lot of ways, reservations are minus the dependence. Reservations are their own little countries. Um, they certainly have the the legal right to be. It's unexercised in most cases, and it's it's blunted out because of um, so much of the dependence. But I think that Indian reservations will probably end up becoming some of them at least after initial. I hate to even use this term, but initial die off. Um, they will become. You know, they could become little little islands, little Hong Kongs, little little countries um, doing their own thing. I think that there could even be non-Indians who would travel to these places. Um, I think that some, you know, there are 500 Indian tribes in this country, um, many of whom have, uh, many of which have reservations. So there are several hundred reservations. Uh, a couple reservations are going to declare themselves to uh, be independent. Um, you know, my tribe, I'm an enrolled member of, uh, of an Indian tribe. Um, my, my tribe, um, 
you know, joined the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, uh, they had their own foreign policy. Um, a neighboring tribe, but a similar one. It's funny. Um, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case about uh, benedictions or, or, I guess, prayers at football games, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, in essence, um, you can't at a football game. You can't have a have a prayer. And um, the Cherokee Nation, um, Cherokee Supreme Court said, well, that's very interesting. That's a great interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, but. And there are a lot of conservative Indians, I mean, in Oklahoma in particular, and that's that's where my tribe is, um, sort of next to the Cherokees. But um, the uh, the Cherokee Supreme Court said that's a great interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, but under the Cherokee Constitution, we're going to pray at football games, and what are you going to do about it? So I a little of that spirit. Um, and so it, I think that they reservations could become very, very interesting places um, and I, I love the idea, um, you know, federal Indian policy is something I, I think about a bit and I really care about. You've got the federal government and states, and states and the federal government are supposed to be checks on each other. It's kind of not working very well, but they're theoretically checks on each other. How cool is it to have a third category of a political entity like Indian tribes who can be a check on the federal government and can be a check on states? And so I'm all for... Indian tribes having um, as many powers as possible and as much autonomy as possible because they'll keep checks on state and federal government and much like the the Federalist Papers were you know all these states were supposed to be these laboratories of experiment right well that kind of broke down what if Indian tribes and there are a couple hundred of them are out there doing varying degrees of liberty having various degrees of liberty I should say what if a tribe decides to get rid of, uh, of an income tax and get rid of taxes and manufacturers come there and can build things in America for a doggone change because it's not overregulated and overtaxed? What if an Indian reservation becomes a model of freedom? Wouldn't that be cool? So, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting when the collapse hits. Um, what happens there? Uh, so that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that, and I don't think you knew my uh, – my rather detailed and somewhat thought-out answer, but um, I should write a I should write a couple chapters about that. That would be a really good scenario. You've given me an idea, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you uh, answering that because that's kind of revealing some private information about you. But I, I had thought about that actually when I had gone to Porkfest uh, earlier this year because you have to travel across from where I'm at. You have to travel across uh, New York State to get there. And there's a huge um, reservation right right there that you drive through. And it struck me odd that you're driving down the freeway. And uh, the freeway's not bad. The roads are okay, you know, as as highways go. And then as soon as you go onto the part that's, uh, you know, that's in the reservation, uh, the roads were just beating my motorhome to death. Uh, and I and I thought, you know, it's almost like the because this is all it's still federal funded highways and it's state maintained, even though it's going through the the reservation. And it's almost like they. I mean, I hate to say this, but it's almost like they intentionally left out the Indians part of the road, uh, and 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 it goes in front of a major casino. So it's not like there's not a lot of traffic, and it's a major interstate highway. But but right from the time you enter the Indian reservation till the time you come out, the road was just horrible. There's in both directions, east and west, uh, there were several people whose cars were uh, pulled over to the side with flat tires. Wow. Well, and I have to. You know, say something that doesn't, you know, put some Indian tribes in a in a great light here. Um, if I had to guess, there were plenty of federal funds and perhaps state funds for that highway maintenance, and there was probably a lot of corruption, and that's probably why you didn't see the maintenance actually happening. Of course, I don't know, but most reservations. The, the amazing thing about reservations are they are the clearest examples of statism in the United States. The government literally owns the land. Um, the you know it's held in trust, and and individual Indians don't own the property. So you've got a situation where the government owns land. There is virtually no private enterprise. Ninety some percent of members of many reservations, not all, um, receive government assistance as as their primary source of income. So you've got <laughs> the future of where we're heading. I think, by the way, you've got 
this, this statism on steroids on an Indian reservation, and then you look at an Indian reservation, many of them, and you see, despite adequate funding, I'm guessing, the roads aren't fixed, you see horrible social maladies of every conceivable kind, the more government you have, and you have more government on an Indian reservation, the more government you have, the more misery you have, and if you don't believe it, go look at an Indian reservation. It is, to me, the, the best example possible of why government doesn't work and why lots of government really doesn't work. Um, so there you go with, yeah, with, uh, you know, Indian reservations being that way. Um, and so, yeah, that could explain the roads. You know, in a lot of ways, Indian reservations, and I'm generalizing because there are so many varieties, but most Indian reservations are like the most corrupt, you know, New Orleans ward, you know, where instead of spending all the money that they were receiving to fix the levees, you know, they were just corrupt as all get out. Um, some of the uh, some of the other sort of Tammany Hall kind of things that are going on. I mean, Indian reservations are usually um, uh, examples of that. Why is that? I my answer for that is very simple. When generations and generations have been absolutely dependent on the government, is it any surprise that there is a political culture there that lets the, the government people do whatever they want. I mean, you know, get, get, having the government bureaucrats mad at you on an Indian reservation is kind of close to life and death. Um, your Indian housing allotment is not going to be, you know, not going to go through. They're going to lose your application to mow your lawn or whatever it takes, you know, there because government owns everything. So you, your life is in the government's hands on an Indian reservation. Is it any surprise that there's corruption like that? Um, so people can learn a whole lot from uh, Indian reservations, and sadly, I think that's the general direction this country's going in. I, I really think it is. Uh, it's uh, the, the insider reservation from everything I've seen is uh, is like a mini little Soviet Union. And day by day, I think inner cities are are becoming more and more like that. And unfortunately, lots of areas well out into the country where where you have your your stereotype, um, you know, I hate to use this phrase because it's derogatory, but the, you have the stereotype white trash or the trailer trash that that is always, you know, that that is always uh, uh, that they always run out and get a, a picture of the uh, of the guy in his T-shirt when the whenever whatever it is that happens that draws the media out there and they get the dumbest guy they can get so that they can make a fool out of him and, you know, on the on the local news. But whether you're talking about situations like that out in the country or the inner cities where the poverty is really uh, at, at the worst depths or on the Indian reservation, it's this, um, it's this complete dependence on the government that's creating, uh, really it's creating the crime, it's creating the complete disrespect for law, it's creating the, the drug addiction and the alcohol addiction because they know I mean, why why get a job uh, for you know for minimum wage if you can get slightly under minimum wage without a job? Absolutely, people are rational and they're gonna they're gonna do it. And it's even worse when you live on the res and everybody around you um, is is you know dependent on government. In fact, you know I I had some friends uh, in graduate school, some Indian friends, and they described that it was really really hard because they would go back home. And people were jealous, and people were mad at. Them. They described it as the the bucket of crabs. You know, one crab tries to crawl out of out of a bucket, and the other crabs pull that crab back down. That goes on a lot too. So when when all you see is this dependent stuff, you're gonna you're gonna probably um, just go along with it. We're seeing that in America. We're see, you know, it's not just Chicago and New Orleans. Um, we're seeing it all over the country. People are saying they're throwing up their hands and they're saying, okay. I get it. I'm just going to get a government check. I'm not going to knock myself out and have a small business, work myself to death, literally in some cases, and uh, then have all the money go away to taxes. I mean, a rational actor at some point says, it's better off. Um, I'm better off. My family's better off just going with the flow. Maybe this is how the world is. Maybe the whole world is on the dole in some way, and that's just how the world is. And I, I don't want to see the Indian reservationification. I just made up a word, reservationification, um, of the rest of the country. I don't want to see it go on, and it is. 
Hey, Glenn, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me. Uh, is there anything you wanted to add before we before we break off here? No, no, this has been a fantastic conversation, and because we know each other so well, we just kind of talk like two people talking who know each other well. It's been it's been an absolute blast. So thank you for having me. I appreciate you asking, you know, for confessions of a former Republican. <laughs> well, I sure do appreciate you coming on the show, and and it is I, I am very at ease with you because uh, our our listeners may not know that that we'll call each other and talk for an hour sometimes. Yeah, and one of my favorite things is one time we were talking for about an hour, and we got done, and you said, wow, that was great. I wish I would have recorded this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we actually did record this one. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, thanks for listening today to BadQuaker.com, and, and, uh, and get over to BadQuaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks. Thanks a lot, folks.